You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. It has never been more important or crucial for Americans to understand their place in the world and how we and our country may be perceived both positively and negatively. My guest, Susie Hansen, has devoted many years of travel, reading, and thought to this topic. We're familiar with the concept of traveling abroad to find oneself, but journalist Susie Hansen's account of her experience living in Turkey and then later using Turkey as her home base as she traveled throughout the Middle East, Afghanistan, and elsewhere is a fascinating story and one worth reading about. In 2007, Hansen was awarded a journalism fellowship from the Institute of Current World Affairs to live and work in Turkey. While a frequent and accomplished freelance author for publications such as the New York Times Magazine, where she is now a contributing writer, Notes on a Foreign Country, an American in a Post-American World is her first book, and notably, it was a 2018 Pulitzer finalist for nonfiction. Welcome, Susie. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. We have a lot of listeners who are high school students, university students, and they may be considering careers in journalism, which mm -hmm. is certainly a changed profession. Yes. Tell us, just take a few minutes and tell us a bit about your career and how you ended up in Turkey. I thought I wanted to be an academic, first of all. So my first job was at a publication called the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. That was in New York City. But at the same time, the first dot-com boom was happening, and there was this kind of proliferation of online magazines. So I, I got an internship at Salon.com, and that's sort of where I fell in love with journalism and criticism, literary criticism. But I was mostly a book critic and an editor in my 20s. And then at some point, I decided I really wanted to be more of a writer and more of a reporter. And around the same time, um, I was working at the New York Observer, and there was a coworker of mine who had been the real estate reporter, and suddenly he was writing about Uganda. Um, and I wanted to understand how he had made that leap, and he did it through this fellowship that I eventually ended up getting. So I applied for Turkey, and... Uh, what was the fellowship? It. It's called the Institute of Current World Affairs, and it's an organization that was founded in the 1920s, actually. And not only for journalists, for all kinds of researchers and academics, different types of people interested in immersing themselves in a foreign country. But who founded that fellowship? Charles Crane. Because I think that's very interesting. Tell us a little bit about who yeah, he was. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, <laughs> Charles Crane was dispatched by President Woodrow Wilson after World War One. So Charles Crane was dispatched by... President Woodrow Wilson, after World War I, to investigate what the peoples of the, of the former Ottoman Empire wanted in the wake of World War I. Did they want the European powers to still sort of govern the, the region? Did they want independence? Did they want something else? And overwhelmingly, the, a lot of the Arabs and the Druze and the, and the Armenians and all different types of people in the region said, of course we want independence, but if we have to have anyone, we will take the United States. Because at that time, they had such an idealistic view of the United States, and they thought, well, we, you know, we might be able to tolerate being a mandate of the United States. And Charles Crane, it was one of the first surveys of that region of its time. And certainly in the US, I mean, most Americans were not familiar with the region. And Charles Crane produced this report and he gave it to President Wilson, but President Wilson never read it. After that, he concluded that, okay, most Americans don't know that much about the rest of the world. I need to start sending young people abroad 
and that's why he founded his organization. I think it's very interesting because the World Affairs Council as a movement started at about the same time. It's very interesting, yeah. You know, one of the things that resonates in your book is you're thinking a great deal about what the word American exceptionalism means. And I remember just a few years ago listening to Colin Powell on one of the Sunday shows, and I have great respect for him, but he said, America is the best country, the best political system. Mm. And I thought, you know, you might have been able to say that a long time ago when it didn't go on the internet and across the world so quickly. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. But how do you see exceptionalism? And you almost say in one section it might even be propaganda. Yeah, I think it is a form of propaganda. It's something that we've been hearing about all of our lives. It's deep in the rhetoric in our, in our news programs, to our education system, to almost everything. It's the suggestion that we are a unique nation, that we have a unique destiny, and that we are uniquely capable of sort of wielding power in the world in a kind of benevolent way with good intentions. It very much makes it seem as if we are a completely different civilization. And in a lot of ways, you know, the United States is very unique. But in this particular case, it seems to constantly repeat and suggest, and, I, and I, what I found when I moved abroad was that I found that this was kind of a reflex within me that suggested we are better, we are more evolved, we are more modern, we are unique in some way, and most of the rest of the world wants to be like us, and that it is our kind of mission, almost like And that to be modern is to be like us. Is to be like us, Western, in the, specifically the American way, and that we should be encouraging the world and helping the world along to become more like us. And that this was seen as somehow not colonialism, not imperialism, but something better. This was what I was surprised by, was that even though I considered myself a critic of American foreign policy, once I was in Turkey, I was having these little voices in my mind that were saying, oh, well, where is Turkey in regards to us? Are, you know, where, have they caught up with us yet, or are they behind us? In a way that is very much an American exceptionalist kind of point of view but that keeps the foreign country in a kind of place of constantly trying to, to catch up and being sort of beneath us. And I found that it was, it was also skewing my perception of the country, making it very difficult to be a journalist there. Susie, talk a bit about foreign assistance, and particularly in Iran, because for a period of time, the United States was extremely active in Iran. Of course, the Mossadegh Revolution. Mm -hmm. We were responsible for overthrowing him in 1953. Mm -hmm. And then we came into Iran and assisted them with the White Revolution. But now, when you look back at it, some of the problems we have with Iran really flows back to that period in time. We helped to overthrow a democratically elected leader, and we restored the Shah and the Shah's dynasty. But I think that what was much more pernicious was the Shah was an autocratic and violent ruler and a repressive ruler. But we portrayed him as if he was this secular, modernizing figure, which is what we did with a lot of these leaders during the Cold War and during that period, and especially in the Middle East. But in the meantime, we were also supplying the Iranians with millions of dollars of weapons. And also there were a lot of Americans on their soil. I think this is something that a lot of us don't realize because it was true in Turkey as well in the 60s and 70s. And how were, quickly the numbers mushroomed. And the numbers mushroom, and, and, and it's very visible to ordinary Iranians. And they're sort of like, well, why are we not administering our own country? Why are we not running our own country? And that is in part for sure what inspired um, Ayatollah Khomeini to, to well, stage his revolution. Well, you say in your book, from 1970 to 1979, the population of Americans went up, I think, from 8,000 to 50,000. Yes, yes, and it was very visible. I think it's important to, to recognize But that's that. exactly what we've done in Afghanistan, too. Yes, especially these countries 
countries, I mean, it just hap so happened that the countries I traveled to shared this experience in the Cold War. During the Cold War, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, they were very much our little Americas. These were countries where you know, we, we felt we could make a showcase out of them, I guess. Are you still living in Turkey? I am, yes. Turkey right now is going through a pretty rocky period, at least from our perception. Yeah. How do you see it as an American and also as someone who has such a keen knowledge of what's happening in Turkey. What are your friends saying? It's a very rocky time and it's a very dark time. I mean, a lot of my friends are obviously journalists and most of the Turkish journalists in Turkey can no longer work as independent journalists. A lot of them are in jail, quit their jobs, um, or they're just simply not working. They've gone abroad. So it's, it's, a, it's a terrible situation. As you probably know, there was an attempted military coup in 2016. Were you there then? I was there that, that night. The group failed to overthrow Erdogan, but in response, he became much more repressive than he had been against the group that was supposedly responsible for the coup and also against Kurds and leftists. And so it's kind of ushered in this newly repressive period. And it is quite a disappointment and quite a, a heartbreak for a lot of people because Erdogan was looked to with a certain amount of hope when I first arrived in Turkey in 2007, which is kind of difficult to remember now. Why do you think the United <coughs> States misses understanding these autocratic rulers like a Mubarak or an Erdogan, or do we just feel that they're representing our interest and that we should back them? I think that Erdogan is really a different case, actually. One thing that I found in my research is that during the Cold War in the 60s and 70s, we frankly preferred autocratic leaders. We preferred people to keep control, to keep stability, and to implement capitalistic policies. So the Americans were fairly naked about that in many, many parts of the world. But I think that with Erdogan, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the religious people in Turkey were to some degree oppressed. And Erdogan represented their interests. And so at the time when he was finally coming to power, I think that you know, part of the American foreign policy sphere had come to recognize that you know, this group, this religious part of Turkey was going to have to assert itself. And that here was a man who was talking about representing them, representing the religious people and representing their human rights, but also talking about democracy and human rights for everybody. And I think that to a certain degree, we were a little swayed by that rhetoric. You know, we believed it in a way. But I think we also fell for it, and this is what I say I fell for, is Erdogan used the language of big business, it was pro-business, it was kind of like, oh, well, he's an Islamist, but he's pro-business. And I didn't even recognize that the time... And the EU was being discussed. And the EU. I mean, yeah. there were a lot of things going on, but I do think that the fact that he sounded like us, in a way, because of that pro-business rhetoric and that pro-capitalist rhetoric, made people feel like he was, he was okay. He was one of us. So where do we stand now, say, with the NATO relationship? U.S.-Turkish relations have never been worse than they are right now. Worse all the way through, or is the military relationship still strong? The, the military relationship, I think, will always be strong. And I think this is also a misconception. It's a very good question, because sometimes you'll see people say, oh, Turkey's going to, to the side of the Russians or something. And Turkey doesn't have anyone else to protect them against the Russians or against the Iranians. They are not a nuclear power. They need NATO. I would be extremely shocked if they were to leave NATO. But that doesn't mean that Turkey, which has always been a fiercely independent country, is not going to get angry at the United States or do things that anger the United States. Susie, I want to thank you for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. The book, Notes on a Foreign Country, an American Abroad in a Post-American World. I've read the book and I really recommend it to our listeners. If you enjoy listening to Global IQ Minute, please spread the word on your social media sites and tell your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. 
a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.